Good morning. So we all have to admit dogs know a little something about social well-being. Am I right? My dog, Coda, he loves, specifically, my husband, Brandon, immensely. He would do anything for Brandon. He loves him almost as much as he loves his treats. <laughs> dogs understand the idea of the dependence on pack, right? They depend on each other to be there to help each other eat, for comfort, for all of that stuff. Am I right? All right, thank you. Uh, my name is Kara Harris, and I'm the director of student ministries, and uh, it is my pleasure to be here worshiping with you today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here today as one to come and worship you. Lord, be the center of this place. May you be our living well, where we can come and be refreshed and encouraged and inspired by your living water. May you open our hearts and our minds to your word today. In your son's holy name, we pray these things. Amen. According to Duke Med News, people with very few social ties are nearly twice the, have nearly twice the risk of dying of heart disease. According to psychological science, you are, if you have fewer social ties, you are twice as likely to catch a cold, which might mean that I need some more friends just about now. <laughs> In the book we've been kind of working through called Well-Being, it talks a lot about how if you have happy friends, you are far more likely to be happy yourself. If you have friends who are overweight, you're far more likely to be overweight yourself. If you have friends with bad habits, you're more likely to have bad habits. And I think these things are true, but I think as Christians we're called to a deeper sense of well-being one which foreshadows what a truly redeemed community may look like. One in which the commandments to love God and love people no matter where they're at is at the very core. Community is important because people are important. We know that people are important to God. And God knew that people were important to people, right? In Genesis 2.18, the only thing in his creation that he says is not good is the fact that man is alone. So he created woman to be there right by his side. He knew that we not only needed to be in relationship with him, but we needed to be in relationship with one another. The social aspect of our faith is a core necessity to our spiritual health and well-being. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, 
We are to stay connected with other believers. And if we're Christians, we're supposed to be Christ-like. So let's, let's look to Jesus Christ to be our example for social well-being. What can we learn about social well-being from Jesus? Well, he was a man that had sometimes found himself surrounded by a multitude of people, 5,000 or more. And if you're an introvert like me, that may not sound like social well-being. <laughs> but he also had his circle. He had his 12 disciples, his 12 men who ate with him, traveled with him, sat at his feet and learned from him. There were women such as Mary and Martha whom he cared for and who cared for him. He had an inner circle. Peter, James, John, they, the one, they were the ones he chose to accompany him when he healed Jairus' daughter. They were the ones who accompanied him when he went up to the mountain and was transfigured before Elijah and Moses. They were clearly the top three, the best of the best, right? Well, we're reminded in uh, Matthew 16, 23 that Peter didn't always have his game spot on, right? He had just been told that you are the rock I'm going to build my church on. And he turns around, he questions Jesus, and Jesus says, and I quote, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have the minds and the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. James, right? Ouch. <laughs> there by, by the grace of God go I. James and John were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. It sounds kind of like a wrestling mania name. <laughs> And I don't think it was probably their name in an ironic sort of way. When they couldn't find lodging in Samaria, Jesus and the disciples are heading to Jerusalem for one last time. This is the trip where, where he is going to find his way to the cross. They're traveling through Samaria, and no one is willing to give them lodging. So James and John come up with a solution. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? They even had their mama ask, hey, can my boys sit right next to you in heaven? Sometimes I feel like people are called into vocational ministry. Sometimes I feel like I'm called into vocational ministry just so God can keep a closer eye on me. But the point is, being in communion with one another doesn't mean we're always in agreement or we're always doing the right thing. Being in a community with each other doesn't mean we're always going to get along. Look at Jesus' disciples. There were a bunch of fishermen. And then there was Simon the Zealot. He loved Jewish law, and he hated the fact that they were being oppressed by the Romans. And then you had Matthew, the tax collector, who was basically the Jewish arm of the Romans. He was collecting money for the Romans and skimming a little off the top for themselves. What dinnertime conversations they must have had. But sometimes we in the church 
find ourselves in conflict with one another. And the temptation is to pull away. But we must continue to meet together. We have the tendency to label each other, probably as there was a little of this done between Simon and Matthew, is we label each other as the other side or one of those people. We want to believe our friends that we eat with, that we worship with, believe like us, but what happens when we find out they don't? Social media has had a polarizing effect. What do we do when people don't think like us, post like us, vote like us? Who do we become when we isolate ourselves from those who don't think like us? There was an instance last Sunday down in Portland, Oregon at Access Covenant Church. Uh, the pastor was there at midwinter, and he, there's a story that, that's been shared in the news and on Facebook and from Joel himself about how last Sunday they were worshiping and two men calling themselves the Bible believers came into their church and came up front and started spouting off and screaming. Um, I'll quote him. We were offering our own hearts to God in service of our neighbors, and that's when one of these gentlemen came to the front and began screaming that God was going to destroy Muslims. The situation was unnerving, but they were glad no one was hurt. And from the article, now they say they will be praying for the men instead of harboring hate. Fear inspires hate, and our job is to stop dividing ourselves between us and them and to guard our hearts from the hate that comes out of fear. How much stronger could the church be if we, with our different thoughts and ideas, and ideals and political stances, could continually spur each other on towards love and good deeds? Placing the idea of loving God and loving our neighbors above our affiliations. It can feel counterintuitive to lean into someone you're in conflict with, but think of the turmoil that is created within you when you have unresolved conflict. And think about how much stronger relationships can be when you walk through that conflict with a person and come out on the other side. But to do this, we must be aware of our personal biases that we bring to the conflict. And I want to be a little vulnerable with you right now and share some of my personal biases. When I was growing up, I had in an 8 by 11 frame an American flag. And I loved this flag. It hung on my wall and I had heard stories about my great uncle who gave his life for a transport ship during World War II. I'd heard the stories of how my father had been a Marine. I married a sailor. My son is, is striving to become an Air Force pilot. This is his dream. And I am so 
grateful for the people who have served this country, the men and women in this room. And when I looked at the flag, I, I think of those people. But there are other stories I think of, too. In 1980, we welcomed um, a high school student from Nicaragua to come and stay with us. Her name was Manana. And uh, while she was there for her short stay, the conflict between the Contras and the Sandinistas broke. And she ended up staying with us for quite a bit longer. She was eventually able to go home. And a little while longer, we received a phone call, Mom and Dad, I need to get out of the country now. It was a very short phone call. We didn't know when she was coming, but she came back. She is a very important person in my life. When I was five, and I had a giant scar down my nose and buck teeth like you would not believe. And I was scrawny. She would bend, and she would take my face in her hands, and she would say, Kalinda, beautiful. She's the only one I ever remembered calling me beautiful. And there's another girl, Kim Shoshim. I have a picture of her. She was about two weeks old when she was placed on a sidewalk and abandoned in Seoul, Korea. She spent between four and six years. We're really not quite sure how long she spent in the orphanage until she came to live with my family and we adopted her and her name became Nancy Carter. This picture is the day that she became a naturalized citizen. That's the day I was given that flag. That was the flag I was given at the ceremony. And I am so grateful that she is part of my life. Today is her birthday. When in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us, for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger and you invited me in, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. When I read that verse, it's my sister's faces that I see. So you'll have to excuse me, my biases... And I will, be, I will admit that I bring those to the table. But I also read in Timothy 2.2, because I have at times, many times in my adult life, with all different kinds of administrations, had real issues with the way they ran things. And in Timothy 2.2, it says, for We must pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And sometimes it's hard for me to pray for my leaders, but I'm called by God to do so. This is all the turmoil that resides in me and in my head and in my heart. And if all this turmoil and tension is residing inside me, how much more is residing in the body of Christ? Our job is to rise above the turmoil. Our job is to resist the need to be right. And we need to seek and ask the question, where is it written?
Our denominational president, Gary Walters, said something that I appreciated deeply this week. As Christians, we follow neither a donkey or an elephant. We follow the lamb. We must, we must continue to meet together so we can be inspired to live out the gospel that centers on Jesus Christ. And we've got to go deeper than just Sunday mornings. We aren't just going to see a movie when we come here, you know, walking in together, observing, listening together, leaving together, but neglecting to live together. Do we sometimes treat church as a movie, as just something we go and observe? How do we make sure that church is something we're, how do we make, how do we, thank you, as a church, make sure we are holding up the value of meeting together as we develop mission and vision together? We're striving to be healthy and missional as a church. If we are going to have a transformational walk with Jesus, we must strive to relate well with his other followers. If we are going to have compelling Christian community, we have to understand that it is a community, it is a healthy community that strives to disciple one another well. Compelling Christian community is at the core of why we just developed a relational covenant. It's so that a diverse church can come together and answer where it is written and wrestle with where it is written and point to the importance of the centrality of God's word. We are a diverse church that comes together to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Compelling Christian community means that we are better together. We are allowed the privilege and the opportunity to give people a glimpse of hope. We are to strive to show people what a redeemed community can look like. It all comes together as discipleship. And discipleship is not one of the things we do. It is the one thing that we do. We've got to mentor up. We've got to be there for our peers, and we've got to mentor down. Jesus sought God. How many times does the Bible record that he goes to the garden to pray for, ask for wisdom and discernment? It's a father-son relationship. In John 5, 19, he says, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. If Jesus needed a mentor, how much more do we need a mentor? And then, of course, you, you have that peer relationship. You have David and you have Jonathan, the, the original bromance. I think, pretty sure David w- was probably the, the um, Justin Timberlake in that one. I don't know what kind of comedian Jonathan was, but 
They were there for each other. They spurred each other on, encouraged each other. They gave each other strength. And Naomi, she was there for Ruth. She took her back to her country and gave her wise counsel. How are you going to build mentoring relationships in your lives in order to develop healthy relationships? Who is your mentor going to be? And who are you mentoring? I've got to do a small plug for small group leaders. (laughs) I know children's ministry and student ministry are both looking for small group leaders. It's the ministry of presence sprinkled in with some dodgeball and coloring sheets. (laughs) But it's the opportunity to be there for somebody. To be that that trusted adult. Our goal is to find five trusted adults in every student's and child's life. If we accomplish that, what kind of church could we be? These students and these children are already doing amazing things, and it is a privilege to have voice into that. Social well-being is about all of this. It's about being in community with those who have opposing views. It's about being able to resolve conflict well. It's about discipleship and mentoring. And as much as I love my dog, discipling is more than just having a good cheer squad and someone who's happy to see you, although that is good too. Social well-being is about spurring each other on to love well and to do good deeds. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allow us sinners, broken people, hurting people to be your church. And as we walk out of this space today, we ask for daily reminders that we are to lean upon you, that we are to drink deeply from you. In your son's holy name we pray these things. Amen.